So I've had this interview ready since December, but my life took kind of a wild turn right around then, and naturally I procrastinated uploading it to Cope. So here it is, the last SPFI. I'm currently working on the summary episode, which is proving incredibly daunting the way that starting this podcast was daunting. It just seems like such a big task that I'm not necessarily equipped for yet. However, if there's anything I've learned from this, in order to be equipped for something, you just have to go ahead and fucking do it. I also have a few expert interviews done and ready to go. We'll kick things off with an episode on consent, because I think everything should start with a discussion on consent, followed by an episode on screenwriting, which will feature exclusive never-before-seen dialogue from the Fleabag shooting script. I'm also proud to say that I have my first professional interview under my belt. I talked to Fleabag's production designer, Jonathan Paul Green, about the spaces and places on the show. Anyway, that concludes this quick check-in for me, your humble hostess here at the Fleabag Research Project. Enjoy the last single-person focus interview. Perv. Slut. Wow! I hate myself. Perv. Slut. Don't make this fun! Perv. Slut. The sex-ibition. Perv. This is the Fleabag Research Project. I'm Yana Rankov, and I'll be your host. Oh, you got me. I don't carry a vagina around with me. <laughs> That'd be way too provocative. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of the Fleabag Research Project. I'm here with my friend, Hannah DeHarnay. Hi, I'm Hannah, and I'm an English literature and history student at the University of British Columbia, and I'm also a big fan of Fleabag, so I'm super excited to talk today. Fuck yeah. Um, this is the first question I ask everyone. Could you tell me about your relationship to Fleabag, the show? Kind of how many times have you seen it, etc.? I first watched the show back in February, and I've watched it four more times since then, and I've watched it both by myself and with other people. And I really enjoyed watching it with someone else because I found it interesting to see what moments they resonated with or found funny, who they identified with. And so I watched it with both my mom and my dad at the beginning of the pandemic. And that was, I think, my most interesting viewing experience of the show. And we really rapidly watched through all of season one and all of season two together. And they found moments in the show that I had missed initially or you know hadn't resonated with as you know firmly as they did and so yeah, it, it added a new dynamic to the show can you share what some of those moments were or what something what was something that your parents pointed out they particularly pointed out the family dynamic and particularly the, the dynamic between um, the sisters and their dad and I think negotiating an adult relationship with your parents it's just something as a young adult I've just started doing whereas my parents have decades of experience navigating you know times of loss and times of grief and trying to figure out through those what it means to be a family and what it means to to be yourself within that so it changed the way I, I looked at the show in many ways. And after rewatching it, following that, I focused a lot more on the relationship between the family members. Yeah, that's interesting. You don't really think of it as a family show, but it's such a, it's a show with so few characters and most of them are Fleabag's family members. Well, that's interesting. I would definitely like to return to that later. Um, another question I have for you, dear Hannah, is how would you describe the humor of the show if you had to? Would you have to? <laughs> I 
I do have to. <laughs> I describe the humor of the show. Obviously, it's very quick and witty. I think it has a really keen observational sense you know, for how people are. And I think it did a good job of finding humor in the subtleties of people's behaviors and interactions and sort of the absurd that can be found in the mundane, you know, riding the tube and, you know, imagining everybody orgasming. I think my period's coming. Being stuck at an awkward family brunch. I also appreciate that while the humor of Fleabag is often punctuated by you know moments that might make you cringe or squirm and feel uncomfortable I never found those moments cruel or unkind which I find that you know some movies or television shows that go for those moments of you know cringe cringiness or discomfort it's at the expense of either the viewer or one of the characters so I found that in Fleabag when there were those really uncomfortable moments both the viewers and the characters were sort of sitting in it together in that discomfort. And it was a discomfort that furthered the story or a relationship it wasn't flippant or pro provocative discomfort. Can you give us an example of one of those moments? In the last episode at the art show, sort of the, the confrontation that ends up happening, you know, between Fleabag and her godmother, and just the tension and discomfort that you feel in the art gallery when that moment boils over. The viewer is on edge, but so is everyone else. Mm. And it had also been a moment that was culminating throughout the season, the tension that we see between Fleabag and her father, Fleabag and her godmother. theft of the statue and the back and forth that happened around that and as a viewer or at least I had a lot of those feelings of anger and indignation that Fleabag expressed mm. and so having that that moment finally come to a head while it was sort of jarring and uncomfortable it was also satisfying because as a viewer someone wanted to just like fuck off <laughs> to the godmother at so many points and to have that moment happen was very satisfying interesting that's not the moment that's not the type of moment I thought you were going to go for so that's a really interesting analysis and at the end of that scene of at this exhibition you also have the tension between Harry and Fleabag Fleabag and mm -hmm. asshole guy and Claire Martin and Fleabag so it all happens at this exhibition baby rapid fire Sort of confrontation know. and discomfort and yeah a, another moment of discomfort was uh the dinner party i think it was claire's surprise birthday party i love um, that episode. you know is gifting the statue <laughs> to claire wow uh that's really rather wonderful thank you what is it is it a paperweight or it is a shrine to your body I love your body. Panic from Fleabag as she's trying to hide the statue and 
act polite. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> this is really, can I, can I say this is really quite something, yeah. Wow, I think it's really oh, a bit inappropriate for your guests to see your body at this. I'm just going to put it somewhere safe. The feeling of being trapped at a dinner party and, you know, having to navigate the, the concealment of the statue and just all the social elements of that as well. That was another moment of discomfort that I also thought contributed to the overall feeling of the show and also the progression of the plot because the statue comes back a lot. Yeah. What, are, what is your take on the statue? What does it represent, et cetera? Like, what do you think about it? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the godmother ends up revealing that it was modeled off of their late mother. I, I think that one interpretation of the statue could be Fleabag simultaneously rebelling against her godmother and grieving for her own mother. We also see Claire expressing that rebellion as well when they leave uh, their mother's memorial. Um, I think it was a memorial brunch that they did for her and she had taken the statue again after having returned it. We, we see that frequently with Claire sort of being not appeasing is the wrong word. Um, sort of trying to play peacemaker and be a good daughter and seeing those moments of rebellion from Claire as well were particularly rewarding. Claire's and, opinion. Yeah, and so for her to pivot from, you know, wanting to do the right thing, return the statue, restore balance to just throwing the wrench back into the gears, you know, taking the statue back, announces that she's leaving Martin, she's going to bail Fleabag out. I thought that was a very powerful moment. So the statue being a symbol of their rebellion. Cool, I love that. That's such a good take, a symbol of their rebellion. Hell yeah, and it's such a fun, I don't know, it's such a fun object that gets, that's so subtle in the background, but it's so present. And the more you think about it, the more it kind of reveals about the show and what's going on. So when you mentioned moments of discomfort and the likes, obviously there's a lot of sexual discomfort within the show. What would you say the effect is of having the first scene be an anal sex hookup? For a lot of viewers, that would be a very shocking you know, beginning to the show because that's not usually how shows that air on TV <laughs> start. While it might be shocking, it was also very refreshing to see you know, sex portrayed on screen and sort of very openly and also with a sense of humor and I think that's fairly rare to see and the sort of sense of humor that isn't sort of slapstick humor around bodies and around sex but just really wry commentary on you know sexual intimacy and yeah, I I immediately was hooked after that. I was like, oh, this is going to be a cool show. <laughs> yeah. When you mention slapstick around sex, uh, one of my least favorite movies of all time is The Proposal. I don't know how you feel about The Proposal, but it's Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds. It's just a bad, and one of the like really? main, exactly, one of the main jokes is them running into each other and falling over naked. And it was in like all of the trailers. It's like, such a trope and as as if it's a joke like it's not funny like it's not just because they're naked like there's nothing inherently like humorous about it and it's treated like this like big oh, ho, ho moment like that's so funny and provocative like 
we're fine. We're fine. Oh, hilarious. Their bits touched. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so having, you know, a sex scene that wasn't treated in that way where it's made light of, but was also approached with sort of an honesty and a sense of humor. Is it having Fleabag speaking to you as the viewer during the scene as well draws you in as a confidant? As a viewer, you're in on it. You're involved now. And it also sort of prompts the viewer to think of their own experiences too. Mm. I think it starts something along the lines, oh, don't you hate it when, you know. You know that moment or something along those lines is the first line. Yeah. I like that you describe the sex scenes as being honest and having a sense of humor. So Fleabag has a couple of different sex scenes and then kind of the main ones being with Harry and with Asshole Guy and also mm-hmm. one with the bus rodent. I, I couldn't figure out the longest name for time, bus rodent's name, bus rodent. until you sent me the character list. Bus rodent, that's perfect. <laughs> I'm glad the character list has come in handy because I sent it in or I sent it to everyone and then Bridget used it and she was like, let me check. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, check the character reference. <laughs> you know, it was just nice to have it be useful so when you think of those sex scenes or even the one where she's fucking like a really old guy um do any stand out as like closest to your experience any as particularly like egregious or uncomfortable uh, any as particularly true and funny a reaction to all of them please all right (laughs) um well the the first one that stands out in my mind because we were just talking about him is the sex scene with um bus rodent and I feel like, you know, in the episode leading up to their sex scene, uh, you know, Bus Rodent was portrayed as, you know, sort of absurd and, you know, Fleabag was portrayed as his reluctant date and, you know, frequently throughout the episode is embarrassed by him and him being overly friendly with her dad at Claire's surprise birthday, him, you know, being slow to the joke in the sex shop. But during their sex scene, have a moment where there's a shift where the sort of light, humorous interactions that they've been having before shift and Bus Rodent is, you know, sort of given a moment of vulnerability. You're like, oh. You don't go through life with teeth like these and, and not know when someone's pretending. <laughs> yeah, and I found that, that really sad and sort of jarring it's one thing for Fleabag to know and the audience to know that he has been ridiculous and that you know characters throughout the episode have been poking fun at his teeth and then to have during that moment a vulnerability and intimacy you know him to reveal like oh he knows too and he can tell that she's not into it yeah Yeah, the the scene really does turn on a dime that's a good that's a good one to bring up I love at Claire's surprise party, one of my favorite moments in the show that I think is underplayed is the way Martin laughs at Bus Roden in the background. He like cannot help himself. Everything Bus Roden said, he just like, <laughs> that's how I feel sometimes around my friends' boyfriends. I'm like, this is, who's this guy? And why is he at my party? Yeah, exactly. Where, where did you get this guy? And why is he here? Yeah, and you know, in our daily life and on our screens, I think we often see characters like that 
It's like, oh man, <laughs> buddy, <laughs> buddy, who is this? And so to have that scene turn on a dime and for him to really expose, you know, his self-awareness and his vulnerability, I think was a, a moment of reflection for both Fleabag and the viewer. So you can see that she's startled mm. after that as well. And it, I feel like it might change the viewer's opinion on Fleabag a little bit as well, because this is, you know, somebody with feelings who genuinely wanted to just, like, have a good time with her and be kind to her. And she decided to take it in that in a different direction. And that's yeah, revealed and in a lot of ways. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that leading up to that in the episode, we, as viewers, sort of get... Fleabag's thoughts on sexuality and intimacy and the power that comes with that, you know, to feel desired, to feel wanted, and sort of the the confidence and ego boost that that can give. Mm-hmm. And so then having at the end of the episode that flip, like that confidence that you can gain can be at the expense of another person and of their feelings. It showed the real potential for hurt that can mm-hmm. also be found in pleasure. And so <laughs> killing it. Well said. Well said. Now that we're talking about it, it makes me think of the way Fleabag gets rejected by Asshole Guy. She is his bus that... rodent in some ways. Oh, I hadn't thought of it like that. Neither had yeah. I until you just made the until you just <laughs> talked about uh the bus rodent. Because, you know, even though we're on Fleabag's side, he's playing her the entire time. Like she's like a She's got the weird small boobs and that's like a turn on, but mm-hmm. you know, she has anal with him and that's a turn on, but that nice, nice, huge asshole. Yeah. yeah. I, I found that scene hard to watch. Just it's sad because you can see the moment, you know, when he, you know, declares his love, with, you know, her smiling because it, it it, it feels good to think someone loves you and to have that immediately be spun to, oh, I have to tell her. The realization that, oh, you're in love but not with me. And I think that that's a moment that a lot of people can identify with because at one point or another, we've all felt like someone's bus rodent. Yes. <laughs> Haven't we just? <laughs> Haven't we just? <laughs> liking someone more than they like you or yeah. wanting someone to like you and they don't and that's yeah it's tough it's no one likes rejection <laughs> sadly the story which kind of I guess naturally brings us to Harry and their relationship and something I'm interested in because I personally really pity Harry not in a way where I pity him and I'm against him I just really like feel for this guy and his role with Fleabag how do you feel about their relationship and you know, who's the bus rodent there and what is, what's going on? I also felt pity towards Harry because I could just feel how desperately he wanted to love and be loved. But I think you can see right away that they're not loving each other in the same way mm. or in the way that the other person needs. And so that was hard to watch. And to see Harry so desperately trying to gain her love or keep her love 
was hard. And as, as much as I, I did feel sorry for Harry, I was also frustrated with him because, you know, he was just as much responsible for the dynamic as Fleabag there in a partnership. Both Fleabag and Harry desperately wanted to be loved and were using the other person for that intimacy and that validation. But ultimately, weren't looking for the same thing. No, they were both looking for love. The way in which they were getting love from the other person wasn't right for them. And you can see that with the tension between Fleabag and Harry with, you know, Fleabag's masturbating habits. And he is so opposed to that. And after they get back together, he, you know, decides we're not going to masturbate anymore. And I've hidden our vibrators. <laughs> and she goes, our? Our vibrators? Okay. Whereas he really wants sort of the domestic, very, you know, affectionate, monogamous, kind of Cutesy. vanilla. Cutesy. type of relationship. And... I think the real disconnect in their relationship is highlighted by their surprises <laughs> after they get back together. <laughs> yeah. He makes this nice dinner and you know has right. done this act of service to show his love and affection and you know, Fleabag decides to you know, pull a prank by surprising him in the shower with a knife. Which... <laughs> Ain't that just the way sometimes? That's just the way sometimes. And I think that was a really blunt representation of their conflicting love and relationship styles. Yeah, I like that. I haven't really thought of that scene as a specific moment of that, but you're completely right. Um, I also like that scene a lot. I like when Fleabag surprises Harry in the shower, though that's one of the most uncomfortable scenes for me because I would never do that. I'm just like, oh, don't scare yeah. this guy. Don't scare him. He's so weak. He's pathetic. You're like, oh no. He's, like, <laughs> He's no. nervous already. Uh, but I really think it's very funny how afraid he is. And then he says, it's like, no, you weren't. Like, this is not, I don't know. I find that line and that fear that he has enhances the humor around him, around Harry, because he's uh maybe it's because i'm looking at it as like a greater scope where i'm like this is genuinely a show where women kind of are under the yoke of sexual violence in a lot of subtle ways and sexual expression so i just find it funny that that's his fear and then at the better men retreat when she shows up kind of to like eavesdrop on the retreat and they send her away and they're so scared of her Slut! guys it's okay keith can Oh my god, um, excuse me miss, you, you can't be here, okay, you really can't be here, it's good. Like that kind of is the same humor for me being like, these men have no reason to be scared of her. Like, if you are the only woman in a room filled with men, you're the one that's afraid. Never the, you know, like that's not even remotely the dynamic. So I find that funny. Yeah, and also a room full of men in anger management. No, thank you. 
who, who have been yelling and swearing all day. And so for her to walk in the room and for them to go silent and skittish. And yeah. Yeah, I find that really interesting. I also know um, like parallels between uh, the shower scene with Harry and the film in, is it Psycho? Is it yeah, yeah, yeah. Hitchcock Psycho? Yes. The shower scene. <laughs> I never made that connection. You're right. I feel like that really ingrained itself in a lot of women's mind in particular, women's minds in particular, as another potential for for violence, and became a part of popular culture. Mm. Check the shower before you get in. Lock the door. Sort of the equivalent of looking under the bed, but mm. the shower boogeyman. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's such a great parallel, Hannah. I have not thought about that. I that is like a very known image and representation of like violence against women in a way that like invades their privacy and their home, and like they're nude during it. You're totally right. Ooh, yeah, that's cool that she. It's cool that she puts that in there and reverses the roles yeah, and makes it funny because it's hard not to be, it's hard to do something like that without making it farcical or satirical in some way, I guess. Yeah. And I think, yeah, like you pointed out, Harry's reaction to it being so overblown, you know, sobbing in the shower afterwards, it, it, it does add humor to the scene just because it gets so blown out of proportion and like while Harry's fear in many ways is understandable, I think what you pointed out that you know, like for women as well, like the the dynamic isn't usually that you know women are the ones to be afraid of, but exactly yeah. like, what do you have to fear? Yeah, <laughs> what are you afraid much, of? Yeah, what are you afraid of? Would you say that the humor that derives from the men in the show now that we've kind of talked them through and the women in the show is different? The show has a lot of very confident and effectual women. And even Claire in particular, who has moments of showing, you know, monthly confident or confidence crisis. (laughs) The bangs is so competent and so smart and Fleabag as well, you know, is repeatedly showing her confidence, you know, her sexual prowess. And on the flip side of that, a lot of the men in the show are portrayed as being ineffectual. We see that with their dad and we see that with Harry and we also see that with Martin where the men aren't very effective or assertive or engaging is the wrong word, but so many of the scenes in the show are being led by the women, where they set the pace, they set the tone, Mm. and where we see that most come into conflict is between Fleabag and Martin, yeah. Because in comparison with their dad and with Harry, who are more 
passive and soft-spoken. Martin is loud. Martin is crude. And I think that sort of that portrayal of masculinity aligns with a lot of what we see in popular culture and in daily life, the bravado, the crude jokes, the domineering attitude. But in their scenes together, Fleabag always goes head to head with him and doesn't back down. And I thought that was a really interesting dynamic because you see this refusal to allow him to be dominant in the scene. And I think she expresses at one point that, you know, Martin is uncomfortable around her or uneasy around her. You can see why. Because she's one of the few people on the show that doesn't let him get away with being a creep. That's, I really like the way you described the women as effective and the men as ineffective. I think that's a really productive way of looking at the dynamics that are created around them. Um, but to add on to what you said about Fleabag and Martin, you're completely right in saying that she's the one who challenges him. But I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge does a really great job of portraying that Martin has the upper hand when he kisses her and he like, he sexually assaults her, you know? And it throws Fleabag's life and her relationship with her sister just for a loop. It's one of the only times we don't have Fleabag doing a quip. She just leaves and she stares at the camera after she gets kissed. And just, it's so frustrating, the reality of that moment, I find, to be like, you can be as like witty and cool and powerful as you want. Some guy can, like, you can still be like cornered. You can still like have your power taken away from you in that way. Yeah by some fucking guy yeah and I think of the men on the show Martin is the most predatory and insidious and his behavior both towards Fleabag and towards Claire is so domineering and commanding and I really admire the way Fleabag after the incident in the garden at Claire's birthday party makes the really difficult decision of telling Claire Mm. what happened, knowing what the dynamic is like between her and Martin and how their relationship is. Because the risk is that Claire doesn't believe her or Martin is able to spin it. But Fleabag's love for her sister and her, her courage to share that overcomes those things and we we see the consequences of that later in the season you know in that that final confrontation between Claire and Martin and Fleabag but I I think that Fleabag's refusal to stay silent about it was her rejection of Martin's attempt to you know, dominate or silence her. Mm. Is that touching someone's body or touching someone without consent is about power and mm. that her refusal to stay silent in this situation was a way for her to reclaim some of that power. And that came you know, at you know, the expense of you know, her relationship with Claire. But 
I found it a very powerful pushback against him. Yeah. That she continued. Absolutely. I guess you could even take it kind of meta and be like Phoebe Waller-Bridge is pushing back against the silence by giving us this whole storyline and all these characters being like, here you go. Like this is not in a like, we won't be silent anymore kind of way, not at all. But like this piece of media shows so many sexual power dynamics over and over again and how they're constantly shifting and how there's, I personally think that the show is an acknowledgement of the world in which I live in which as like a young woman with this body that I didn't choose, but that I have everything, every interaction is about sexual power. That's all of it. All of them. I have no choice. That's just what they are. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like Fleabag is a good acknowledgement of that. And I like what you said about being, being a pushback and a refusal of silence. At least I'm taking it that way. I'm taking it meta. It shows the ways in which that's complicated as well, because like so often get the very like glossy and optimistic, you know, you know, we will not be silenced. We will stand up like, you know, fists in the air. But so often the reality can be so isolating mm. and the, the, the personal and social consequences that can come with refusing to stay silent and navigating disclosure and navigating those ongoing power dynamics can be so difficult and I thought that the show did a good job of portraying Mm -hmm. that as well and we see that with the the pushback that Fleabag gets and I also think that Fleabag and I'd love to get your take on this Hannah specifically there's these moments within Fleabag that are I'm even struggling how to frame the phrase it properly they're not critiques of mainstream feminism as much as they are pointing out the like farcical way in which feminism has been marketed like the women who do yoga and say I can't blow this body on a baby the women speak conference the silent retreat like all these kind of commercialized ways in which feminism exists around us that are nothing what do you think those moments tell us about where Fleabag and Phoebe Waller-Bridge stand? Or how do you categorize them? I was also very struck by the moments that you pointed out, mm-hmm. you know, um, women's conference, you know, the yoga women and the women's retreat. I found them really compelling commentary on the contrast between sort of commercialized Commercialized might be the wrong word. Exactly. It's not quite commercialized, but it's like a mainstreamization. Mainstream, the performance or commercialization of forms of feminism, how those can miss or fail to acknowledge some of the intersecting realities that many women face. Mm. Well put, well put. Because, you know, as, you know, much as, you know, you want to be empowered and feel confident and feel in charge and, you know, like a powerful woman, I feel like the show also points to the power dynamics that are at play, you know, of, of sexual violence, of, you know, existing in a body that's you know, recognized as a a woman's body 
and sort of the, the risks and realities that come with that during the women's conference. You know, when they ask who would give up five years of their life to have the perfect body and both Fleabag and Claire put their hands up and then immediately sort of recoil and feel like bad feminists, you know, with, you know, stares coming in from the other audience members. But I feel like that was a moment that a lot of particularly young women watching could identify with because so often as a woman, your value is associated with your body and with, you know, beauty and with youthfulness and that beauty and beauty and youth also come with power Mm. and Fleabag expresses fear when she's in the bathtub with asshole guy. I love that scene, by the way. Me too. I'm (laughs) afraid of losing the currency of youth because as women get older, a lot of women experience, you know, a, a dismissal, particularly women in public facing jobs in entertainment or older women are dismissed as undesirable and youth really does hold power mm. so I thought that having that moment at the women's conference where both Fleabag and Claire very honestly raise their hands that they would give five years off their life to have the perfect body sort of shows that complex relationship between beauty standards and you know beauty ideals and and an honesty about it too and and an honesty about it while also wanting to be a good feminist because I think most people have had days where they wish they looked different or could fulfill some standard they felt they weren't fulfilling and those pressures come in from everywhere from the media from you know, our, our regular socialization. And so having those sorts of pressures battling with the desire to adhere to other standards. Perhaps we can say that there is a flea bag. The show acknowledges the complexity of those emotions. And as a result, when uh, matters of kind of feminist existence are portrayed, they're often poked fun at or made to seem too simple and kind of easy and like difficult and just you know throwaways and Fleabag even says at one point that she's afraid that she's a bad feminist and I think that just adds to the guilt of her existence that she can't even do that right she can't even call herself a feminist yeah like feeling like you're a bad woman Mm. while also grappling with feelings of insecurity with sexuality with other power dynamics involving money with men with Mm. and how those all form around what can sort of be an idealized notion of feminism Mm -hmm. and a simple a simple notion of feminism an easy one like that doesn't exist yeah yeah that you can just like flick on a switch whereas there's so much nuance in that battling the internalized misogyny and exactly and fleabag itself is like such a small subsect of like white upper middle class britain you know that and like acknowledging that even that has like its own complications when it comes to what feminism means like let alone like all other intersects and views on feminism and how to like 
negotiate all of that and you know how to as somebody who lives in like a world with all kinds of people where to put feminism so I like that it complicates it to such an extent that you're questioning it it and questioning and it makes you question the characters and she's questioning it in within herself and I, anything that has to do with guilt I'm always like mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what would you make of Claire saying that she can't wait to be old in contrast to Fleabag saying she's afraid of losing the currency of youth she says it in the graveyard right I have forgotten about that scene that's what I'm here for really interesting contrast between Claire and between Fleabag I wonder if for Claire growing older symbolizes more of a you know process of maturing and growing more confident Mm. we see throughout the show Claire really having those crisis like crises of of confidence and uncertainty and insecurity and I wonder if growing older was presents an escape from some of those things you know worrying less about appearance having more security in her job maybe having more security in her relationship and in her family yeah and maybe having some of the some of the pressure of being like beautiful taken off yeah and feeling pressure to uphold those standards of beauty Mm. i noticed on this rewatch uh that claire's hair gets progressively shorter it does it does and it is its shortest the end of season two when she leaves martin and she gets it sort of cut into the gamine style that's such a cool um that's such a cool takeaway yeah that's that's completely true traditionally in in many cultures in many places women's beauty was tied in many ways to their hair and having long hair and so seeing Claire's hair grow progressively shorter as she grows increasingly sort of confident and rebellious ultimately culminating in her leaving Martin so cool very true that is very cool and it's closer to Fleabag's hair she's got the short hair yeah you're right and when Claire leaves the wedding or yeah when Claire leaves the wedding she has like extensions in or a hairpiece and she takes it off and leaves it queen runs to the airport you've heard me we've used anxious queen as like a a descriptor that's where it came from my best friend dora and i were watching fleabag and we just started going anxious queen every time she was on screen being an anxious queen i I adore claire i i found her after several rewatches to every time be my favorite character to watch she's a big fave of mine as well i just think she's hilarious i know so many claires i love so many claires and and seeing her journey is so rewarding Mm. and you have the series end with claire getting her happy ending absolutely running to the airport Mm -hmm. and you know the promise of claire having someone who will love her back because in her way, we see Claire loving the other characters on the show so much. And she explains at um, the brunch for her mom, well, I'm trying to explain why she's turning down the, the Finland promotion. You know, she can't leave Jake 
and that she can't, you know, leave her broken sister. Mm. And see in that moment how much she cares for her sort of odd stepson. Of course, yeah. and, and, And Fleabag and how important those people are in her life and that she takes caring for people very seriously. You mentioned that you wanted to talk about the family dynamics. What specifically interests you in them and and the portrayal of the family in general? I found the dynamic between uh, Fleabag, Claire, and their dad very striking. Dad will come in with some weird canapes in a second. Girls! Hello. Hi. Hello. So we can see that in person, the siblings and their dad really struggle to communicate. Oh, you're uh, both looking very healthy, very, very good and healthy, and um... and to connect, particularly, um, particularly during the sort of memorial brunch i keep calling it a brunch so i hope it was That's a brunch. Right. Scene. it's a lunch but you know it's we're on the west coast it's a brunch baby <laughs> when i'm dead throw me a memorial brunch <laughs> yeah. and you know flea bag enters into the kitchen and she turns to the camera and says you know oh you know, my dad hates being alone with me you can see how flustered he gets sort of fumbles over his words and ends up dropping their appetizers but you know, compared to that, we see throughout the series how much their dad clearly does care for them mm-hmm. by booking them annual mammograms. Did you uh, talk to Dr. Samuels about you? Yes. Mm-hmm. And they're happy, they're getting along all right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. Excellent. Excellent. You are my... <clears throat> yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sit down. By, you know, booking the Mother's Day uh, women's retreat, by booking the feminist lecture. So the way in which he is showing love to his daughters and you know, his concern as a parent may not be immediately apparent just based on the scenes in which we see them interact so as, a, as a viewer you're almost wanting to yell just talk to each other wanting to so badly tell his daughters how much he loves them and how much he cares for them and for them to have that conversation but through his actions you can see how much he truly does care I mean, to have an, an adult father book for his adult daughter's annual mammograms you know after their mother passed away from breast cancer for sure shows an attentiveness and concern that I found very touching so I think that with family in particular there can be a lot that goes unsaid Mm. and people have different ways of loving each other and showing their love yeah and I thought that the show did a really good job of depicting someone who wasn't necessarily very good with their words still showing a tremendous amount of love I 
one thing I really like about this interview, Hannah, is that you have consistently pointed out moments of miscommunication and how they're in a lot of scenes and kind of the central issues between characters are them just not being on the same wavelength or being able to speak to each other truly. That's that's interesting to pinpoint problems there over and over again. Thank you. That's such a consistent thorough line through the show that I haven't really noticed. So thank you so much for sharing that and for giving that to the show. Yeah. What do you giving me the opportunity to talk about the show? I'm so psyched. <laughs> please, please. This is why I wanna why I'm making this because Every time I talk to my friends about it casually, we would end up having the deepest, best, most nuanced conversations. And they deserve to be recorded. They deserve to be captured and thought about and looked at. Yeah, something's not relevant unless you record it and archive it properly. It, it, you lose it otherwise. You're a history major. Exactly. Like, I'm not explaining anything. I'm preaching to the choir, if anything. <laughs> Yeah, it's all about records and information management. <laughs> yes. Archives, archives. Um, what do you make of the godmother? Absolute golden queen, the godmother. <laughs> so not to give away where I stand. <laughs> the, the queen and wicked witch of the yes. show. <laughs> I thought she was a really well-constructed character. And... One of the questions that you asked on your survey was, who do you think is the most high status character of the show? And I had a hard time of choosing one, but I ended up settling on the godmother because she so effectively and consistently exerts her power over an interaction in a scene. And particularly in the scenes between her and Fleabag, see her very, very coolly commanding and commanding the direction of the interaction or sort of asserting her dominance. Mm. You know, when she finds Claire and Fleabag in the studio and they're trying to return <laughs> the statue, you know, she's like, oh, what are you doing in here? Mm. And Claire said she had gone up to use the bathroom. She's like, oh, I'll show you where it is. And, oh, well, I, and Claire responds that, you know, I grew up in this house. And the godmother responds, well, a lot's changed around here since then. Really staking her claim. Lifting her legs. Taking taking the leak. So simultaneously staking her claim to their father, to their childhood home, and her place within their lives now. I think she's so, she's so interesting. (laughs) I'm having trouble formulating my thoughts about her. Because I think that she, she's very high status. She's also fun as hell. I just, every time her and Fleabag interact. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned, we talked about the miscommunication. I have, I think, said this in most of the previous interviews, so I'm sorry to the listeners if I have any. But I think that Fleabag and the Godmother are the only people that can communicate. They're so on the same page. Everything they do is for the other person, and they read each other yeah. so well. Oof, I love it. I love watching them interact. Yeah. I I also found that really interesting that really between Fleabag and the Godmother, some of the most explicit and honest conversations that we see going on between the characters, because they make their dislike for each other very clear. Palpable. Palpable. <laughs> and 
even come to blows. Um, yeah, that's the only, I mean, there's sexual violence on the show, of course, but that mm -hmm. slap. And it's a slap that her dad sees and says nothing about, mm, which is difficult. also frustrating yeah. and disheartening to see the power dynamic between Fleabag and her godmother. They're both sort of pushing back and attempting to claim power over the other. Fleabag steals her statue. Uh, you know, the godmother makes Fleabag a server at her, you know, gallery pre or her gallery premiere. Her yeah, at the sex exhibition, baby. The sex exhibition. There you go. Makes her a server at the sex exhibition, and is consistently demeaning towards her, which you know generally Fleabag pushes back against, and we see that boil over at the sex exhibition. She's she's great. I I adore. J'adore. Um, <laughs> as a parting question, we're just about out of time. I would really like to ask you about the bank manager and what you make of his role within the show because he's such a central character and I find him so fascinating and I would love to know what you think about him. I found his growth over the course of the show very interesting. Just the conversation that the bank manager and Fleabag have when they're both smoking outside of their respective retreats together. You can only really have a conversation when you smoke, man. I stand by it. That's why people do it. That's why people do it. The social aspect. That's what my mom always says. She's like, I'm a social smoker for the social aspect. You're like, okay, mom. <laughs> where we really saw a shift from the scene we had first seen him in where he dismisses um, Fleabag's loan application and you see him show some vulnerability. I touched a colleague's breast more than once at a party. I... They asked me to go on a workshop to... I'm just a very disappointing man. And express his desire to really just be good for his wife. I want to take clean cups out of the dishwasher, put them in the cupboard at home. And the next morning, I want to watch my wife drink from them. I feel like that ties back sort of into what we were talking about, the ways that people show love. It's that, you know, he wants to be present and to be good to his wife you know by doing things like cleaning the dishes and being with her and we just see him express a very earnest desire to be a better man and in a show with so many flawed men yeah the men do not come off well no with so many flawed men and men like martin who are just truly vile. Seeing the bank manager's redemption arc that happens just kind of quietly in the background as a through line was nice because I think it sort of suggests that if you want to be better, you can be.
and his, you know, kindness towards Fleabag ends up making a huge difference in her life. Yeah. You know, he, a- he gets it alone. And she's able to keep her business. And those sort of mirror scenes that we get from the failed bank loan to sitting down in her cafe and successfully filling out the application. It was, I, I just found it a very hopeful scene that mm. if you want to do better, you can. Yeah, and tonally such a good ending to the show. Not sad, not happy, hopeful, you know, tentative. Somebody about, it's one person helping another. That's how it ends. Just somebody reaching towards Fleabag and helping her, which is what she's been needing this whole time. Just somebody to say, hey, I truly want to help you. We can see her reaching out for help throughout the show and not getting the support that she needs you know, from, from her dad, from her godmother, from her sexual and romantic partners. Mm-hmm. I think the closest support that she has is Claire and the blow to the relation or the blow to her relationship with Claire that comes through Martin is is devastating and so to have you know series one end with someone else reaching out their hand to say you know I do believe in you and I am here to help it was a nice note to end on a plus baby yeah do you have any parting thoughts for the show anything you didn't get to talk about any comments or jokes you want to crack that you didn't get a chance to work in (laughs) Oh gosh, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, hot priest in season uh, two. Mwah, 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 mwah. Yes. <laughs> Taking that Catholic guilt. Let's make it sexy. Let's make it hot. <laughs> One of my favorite things about season two is that she falls in love. She, you know, Fleabag, who's kind of an infomaniac in a lot of ways, falls in love with someone who's celibate and he with her. And I think it's such a good way to keep dramatizing and keep the theme of sex and sexual power and what it means to be sexually desired and sexually powerful. It's such an interesting way to continue that and to be like, she cannot have sex with this guy. She can't. And what it just means. Oh, we love the hot priest. We love the hot priest. I know he's so engaging. He's such a good male love interest, like creme de la creme, like funny, insightful, kind, like a genuine love interest, not like an object. And he also listens to Fleabag. Mm. He actually listens to her and is interested, which is something we see that's lacking with some of her other romantic connections in season one asshole guy doesn't really listen to her no he's stupid he's stupid and he's self-absorbed and so to have someone truly listen to her I think is huge Mm. and then to have a dynamic where both of them hold power through sexuality and through sort of withholding sexuality and being celibate that the two ends of that scale both are tremendously powerful. Exactly. The immovable force. <laughs> we, or 
It's the in unbeatable force meets the immovable object. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. An all-powerful force versus an immovable object or something like that. Yeah. And I think it creates a really solid note of absolute consent when they do have sex. Like, they're both incredibly aware as to where the sex will lead. And they both enter that and they go, we will have sex with each other. We both want to. We both really, like, are so into each other. We're almost in love. And they know, not that you have to be in love to have sex, obviously not, but... Uh, or to have good sex or consensual sex, but the absolute consent that exists in order for them to have sex is really beautiful. And I think such a great addition to the show. Oh, that's such a great point. That the absolute consent and then the passion that follows. Sort of the last scene between the hot priest and Fleabag, I thought had interesting parallels uh, to the scene between asshole guy and Fleabag, mm. where she's caught off guard when you know, asshole guy professes his love and then reveals that he's in love with someone else. Whereas in Fleabag, or at the end of season two, Fleabag and the hot priest are sitting on the bench. Uh, I think it's at the bus stop and they're both quiet and she just says, you know, like, it's God. It's not me. Where even without having explicitly communicated with each other, they both knew. Yeah. And I thought that that was a really bittersweet moment because it shows how connected they are and in tune with the other person. Yeah. That as much as that wasn't the answer she wanted, she knew that that was the case. Yeah. It's, ugh, it's so beautiful. And I love, mm-hmm. I, and I love when he says it'll pass. He's right. It'll, it'll pass. This will just be another chapter. Pass. She'll fall in love again. Ugh! What a great show. What do you think the fox represented? Ooh. What does the fox represent? There's... I think... Sort of... It ties into the priest's religion and godliness. And it's maybe kind of a cosmic reminder of god to the priest which is why it appears so often and in this moment of doubt the foxes not that they're like hounding him for it but just like a reminder of kind of like a cosmic power like the foxes aren't coincidental at that point like we see the last fox and we're like this is his fox i think it represents his (laughs) own more his own morality and his own like belief in a cosmic good that these foxes follow him and exist what do you think i i had a very similar interpretation mm-hmm. that, that means we're right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all point to us being right i found when we're first introduced to the foxes it's when i think the hot priest and flea bag are sitting outside the church mm-hmm. uh and they hear rustles in the bushes and the hot priest gets all worked up because he's afraid that it's foxes. Uh, you know, sort of expresses his fear about them and is looking around wildly and Fleabag thinks it's hilarious. Is when we actually get to see the fox, you know, in you know, one of the final scenes. You know, the, the fox has appeared silently, you know, looks 
at flea bag and then continues on. I think for me that sort of suggested that you know hot priest had found peace or had become more settled within himself and you know whereas even just the noise of the fox potentially approaching you know at the beginning you know elicited a lot of alarm mm. you know a fox unconcealed and I think it goes off in the same direction. He yeah, does. she points. She goes, he went that way. Yeah. Yeah. To follow him undisguised. I I thought was a really nice sort of conclusion that, you know, you don't have to be afraid anymore of the foxes. That he has become more grounded in, you know, his faith and sort of cosmic beliefs mm. and morality. Ugh. that he was tempted and and still chose the path of god yeah yes I maybe yes. So i wonder if maybe the foxes were almost you know temptation to mm. stray or you know sort of worldly concerns mm. that whereas before they might have been sort of an element of anxiety or fear now it can walk beside him as he walks the path of God. <laughs> sure. No, absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, yeah, I love that. Ugh, it just gives so much hope that whole storyline. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work out, but you know, the question it after is after the honeymoon period of that relationship, what do they build? What do they have? You know, this guy left his calling for her. You can't, you yeah. cannot live up to God, you can't live up to that relationship at all. And the guilt that would be tied to that. Cosmic baby. Crushing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, because we need more guilt in our lives. And I think it also shows that someone can be right for you in a moment, mm. but not necessarily forever, and that's okay. It'll pass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on that note, Hannah, I'm really happy that we indulged each other and spoke about the priest a little bit. This is my last single person focus interview. I might do some later. I really don't know yet, but I'm transitioning into expert interviews after that. So thank you so much for being the last interview. Thank you for all of your insight and for your beautiful discussions and thoughts that you shared with me and with the podcast. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy I got to come on and chat with you. I would love to continue talking with Fleabag just informally over drinks sometimes. Please. <laughs>